Raise your hand if you have been to Yellowstone National Park. I've never been. Should I go? Yes. Yeah, but I'm not sure I should go. Uh, that was a trick question, because I've been reading a few things about this Yellowstone Park <laughs> that have frightened me. Yellowstone is the world's first national park, kind of invented the idea of, of setting aside these parks. Sits on 2.2 million acres, but did you know a third of the park is a caldera, which is a giant crater left behind by a massive explosion because the whole park sits on top of a supervolcano. And you've been there? I don't know. <laughs> I read an article recently uh, about Yellowstone because I was fascinated by this thought that people are touring a supervolcano every year. And uh, the article says this, as tourists stroll between Yellowstone's 300 active geysers, taking selfies in front of thousands of bubbling, boiling mud pots and hissing steam vents, they are treading on one of the planet's greatest time bombs. The park is a supervolcano. Underneath the national park's attractions and walking paths is enough hot rock, get this, to fill the Grand Canyon 14 times over. The caldera is a volcanic crater some 40 by 25 miles, 40 miles by 25 miles, is a crater left behind when they estimate 240 cubic miles of debris ruptured out of the earth and into the air during a volcanic discharge thousands of years ago. Experts, experts estimate that if it were to erupt again, the death could approach 100,000 people. When it does blow, it will probably change the world. I don't know if I want to go there anymore. Oh, look, Old Faithful. We've got pictures. We've been going through them there. Yeah, what's making all of that smoke? I'm standing on a supervolcano, but it's so pretty and deadly. I'm nervous about that. Here's a picture of a volcano in Mexico that erupted several years ago. I wouldn't want to be standing on top of that. But I'll probably go because they don't know when it's going to explode. Now, why did I share that with you? Well, it's because God wants us to know just how much damage uh, one body part can do to our whole world. That body part we started last week talking about is the tongue. God really wants us to know just how damaging the tongue can be to our lives. So when you think, how much damage can my words possibly do to my life, I want you to think supervolcano. Okay, put that picture back up there again. I want you to think devastation on that scale can come from your lips. It's shocking the imagery that we will read today in the book of James that describes what our tongue can do to our world. We have to learn to tame the tongue. Otherwise, explosive fire and toxic ash will consume everyone and everything around us. God is in love, warning us in advance and helping us so that this doesn't happen. The good news is God can help. That's great news. We're going to pray and then we'll get into the word together and learn how to tame the tongue. Let's pray. Thank you for your word, Father. We believe that this Bible that we are opening right now is the very lips of God. It's God-breathed. 
We know, Father, that you spoke through the prophets. You spoke through your servants. These are your words. Thank you for speaking to us. Help us, O Lord, to speak what is true and loving at all times. Give us the power and the perspective we need to spare those around us and even ourselves from the pain that could come from the words we use. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're going into the book of James. Tame the Tongue, part two, is James chapter three, verse six. The series is called Faith in the Fire, God's Plan for Your Pain. We're learning that there are six major uh, sources of grief and agony and suffering that come up in the book of James. One of them is the tongue, and it's the words you use, and it's the words others have used uh, about you or towards you that can inflict deep emotional pain that can last for decades. So how do we avoid this? Well, uh, James is helping us with that. So James chapter 3, verse 6 It says this, we're we're picking it up mid-thought, all right? It says, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. James will use uh, three or four pictures this week to show us what it's like to battle the tongue into submission and to show us why it's so hard to do that and to show us why it's necessary to do that. He's illustrating all of this with these fantastic word pictures. All right, and the first one that comes up here is a fire. He says, the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness set among our members, stating the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. Jot this down. Number one, pour water on your fiery words. If you're going to tame your tongue, you have to see just how Your words can be incendiary. They can be flammable. Now, this is a powerful way to describe the sheer depravity of the mouth. It says it is a fire. Then it says it's a world of unrighteousness or a world of evil. What does that mean? Well, I just like that picture. It's it's not like there's just one sin living here. It's like there's a whole civilization of sins living here, a whole world of them, a society of ordered tribes of sins that all rain out of my mouth. It's like there's a whole planet's worth right here. That shows the enormity of sin that can come from the mouth. And then it says that it stains everything. So he's just firing these word pictures. It's a fire. It's a planet. It's like ink coming out. It's staining everything. That's a funny thought to me. I was a child of the 80s. So I grew up watching Ernest movies. Ernest Goes to Camp, Ernest Goes to Jail, Ernest Goes to Africa. How many of you have seen all the Ernest movies? You are going to get a special jewel in your crown uh, in heaven. No, I'm just kidding. I can't promise that. But if I could, my kids love the Ernest movies now. But there is this one scene, do you remember it, in Ernest Goes to Jail when he's, he's on the jury and he starts, remember that? He starts chewing on his pen and it breaks and, and the ink starts going everywhere, all over his face. And he gets in trouble by the judge. Here's a picture. This is a picture of Ernest goes to jail with ink all over his face. Now, that portrays uh, what your words can do. This like, like magic marker ink coming out of your mouth all over yourself. Right? And, and this is a picture, spiritually, of, of what God sees 
when, when filth comes out of your mouth, it's like ink is drooling down your, your clothes. And you're stained. And stains don't come out, which shows the, that these words can be permanently marring your spiritual condition. Wow. It's, there's a world of evil. It stains everything. And then it says it sets your whole life on fire in verse 6. It says setting on fire the entire course of your life or the, the circle of your days. Or, or That's an interesting phrase there in the Greek. It, what he's trying to capture is the problem is not going to go away. Okay, it starts when you're young, and all the parents said amen. It starts when you're young, the, the words start fires, and then parents have to put them out. And then it doesn't stop when you hit middle school, or high school, or college. Or then you have kids of your own, and you find yourself trying to hold back the words. Then the kids leave, and it still doesn't stop. And you get older and older, and it can get worse and worse. The fire can keep coming out, birth to nursing home. In other words, it won't solve itself. It's not something that we mature out of. The whole circle of your life can be set on fire by this temptation. It can ruin you when you're seven. It can ruin you when you're 77. And then it says something amazing. It says in verse 6, setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell where does this fire come from what is the origin of of the language that escapes our lips it says hell itself so james can it can this picture be any more horrifying your whole life is on fire uh there's ink spewing out of your mouth there's a civilization of sins living behind your mouth and by the way it's the fire of hell that's burning and continuing the damage. We learn here that there's spiritual warfare involved in what you say. Uh, Satan targets the tongue, and he's a pyro, and he loves to see you burn. He loves to see your life burn. He will tempt you daily to say things that can ruin your life. Hey, Satan wants you to enjoy hell on earth now. So he throws a match in your mouth. That's one of his plans. And you felt this. You've felt the energy when you've gotten into a, a conflict with your spouse or, or when you're telling your kids, again, what you expect of them or, or when, when your boss has pushed it too far and you feel this push, say it, say it, say it, say it. And that's called spiritual warfare. It's more than your mind. It's more than your heart. There's this push, this thrust. Something is turning up the volume in your heart. Satan can't control you, but he can strongly influence you and bait you and tempt you to say things that you will regret. He's the master of the mouth. How did he lead the whole world astray? With his mouth, he told a lie about God. That's all it took. He told a lie about God. He's the inventor of lies. He's the father of lies. He knows how to get you to sin with your tongue. That's, 
an amazing thing that our words can, can come from hell. I mean, nobody acts like their words were shipped up from the warehouse of hell, right? Nobody acts like that. It's not like you get home and you're like, honey, I picked up a few choice words from the netherworld that I'd like to share with you right now. So just have a seat. This will be over in a sec. Like, nobody says that, but when you trace back all of the emotions that went into what you just said, you find that the origin is diabolical, and that should concern us. So I wonder how you're doing with this. Kids in particular, I do mean grade school kids, but anybody living under their parents' roof, I wonder, how are you doing at talking to your parents? How are you doing at choosing your words carefully and wisely? Is it time to pour water on the fiery words that are coming out uh, from your lips? Are you tempted to go flamethrower? God has an opinion on that. Satan has a plan for that. And do you, do you realize that you have to win the battle with the words you use? How are you doing with that? Ask God to help you. Ask God to forgive you. And he will. Uh, you can't be at war with your parents and at peace with your God. It's impossible. So pour water on your fiery words. That's where taming the tongue begins. Um, now, he moves on here to another illustration. He starts with fire, primarily fire, with a little ink and a, and a planet mixed in. But fire was the first one. Um, here's the next one. Jot this down. Number two, stop, stop biting and poisoning others. He moves on to this like poison, animal, venomous illustration. So in verse 7, you see in verse 7, check it out. He says, for every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. He uses this parallel here. He says, look around the zoo and see all of the animals that we have tamed. We've tamed this one. We've trained an elephant to kneel down. We've trained a tiger to jump through a flaming hoop. We've tamed them all. <laughs> and yet we can't tame the tongue. It's in a special, wild, beastly class of its own. It's untamable. Think about that. I like the zoo. The dolphin show used to be better, but at Brickfield Zoo, it's still pretty cool, right? I, I love it. I go there, you see the dolphins jumping up out of the water, and they're like doing, you know, they're up out of the water, going back and forth, walking on their, on their fin there, and then they do the flips and everything. It's so cool. I'm like, how did they teach them to do that? That's amazing. Then they hit the beach ball up into the stands, and you hit it back. They're playful. I love that. But then I went to SeaWorld, and they've got the killer whales there and they've had some accidents, it's a different feeling when you go to SeaWorld. Have you been to SeaWorld recently? Oh, they got the souvenirs out, and they're playing the beach music, but it's eerie. Have you been there? You walk up to the, to the, to the killer whale tank, and it's like, you're, it's like you're at a crime scene. There's whispering, yeah, you know what happened in there? And the trainers are all like, not in the water anymore. You know, wave your fin big thing waves its fin, but nobody's going in there. Why? Because they learned the hard way. These are wild, wild animals. And sure, you can get them to jump and twirl, but they are not tame. And 
capture all of that imagery because James says here that we've tamed them all, but there's a wild animal hibernating in your jaws and it will never lose its wild streak. Your tongue is like a killer whale in captivity. It is sweet one minute and savage the next. It's murderously savage. And if you don't fear its power, it will ruin you. It can't be tamed. What does that illustrate? It illustrates depravity. Uh, I think primarily he's illustrating the fact that it's never done. All right, did you hear that? No matter what age you are, the fight to keep that thing on the leash is never over. It's looking for a chance to gobble you up, okay? Even after you're saved, the fight is not over. It can't be fully tamed. Uh, it's described here as a restless evil. This, this imagery is like it's behind the cage and it wants to come out. Uh, full of deadly poison. So I think, given the fact that it just talked about how hell set it on fire, and now we're talking about a restless, poisonous, it's almost like a snake. It's, 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 now, uh, it's now mirroring Satan, the ancient serpent himself, uh, right? And there's a parallel there. Your tongue is acting like a venomous snake, biting and lashing onto the neck of someone who you can't stand, and then venom, 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 venom. <laughs> wow. I don't know if you're looking for a new job, but uh, I saw online a video of a guy doing a job recently. Um, so check it out. Here's what this guy does for a living. Uh, he feeds, he feeds cobras. So he's picking up dead mice, and then he's feeding cobras. feel like he should be reacting much differently than he is right now? He's whistling. And those rubber gloves aren't going to do much when those fangs come out. Snake doesn't want to go back in. All right, I'll go back. Should we watch one more? Let's watch one more. He comes right out of there. <laughs> okay, that's good. <laughs> yeah. Let me read this again. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. It's like, it's like the gate opens. Where's my prey? If you do nothing to tame it. Wow. Now, it says here, no man can tame the tongue, right, in verse 8. We have to ask ourselves what that means. So if we can't do it, why are we commanded to? This is actually a theologically deep question here. If God commands us to do something that we learn is impossible, how are we supposed to process that? Um, this isn't just a question that applies to the tongue but spiritual growth in general. How do I grow? 
Um, well, some believe that we are passive in the spiritual growth process, and all we do is watch God, fix our eyes on Jesus, and wait for him to change us. That's an unbiblical opinion. We are not passive in the spiritual process of growth. Other people think God is passive in the spiritual growth process, meaning he's already given you everything you need. Get to work. God blesses those who bless themselves. That's an unbiblical view. We are not passive in this process of spiritual growth because the Bible says do your best to present yourself as a workman approved who need not be ashamed. That's a call to action to act in a way that's consistent with every other one of your choices in life. You're on the hook to do your best. But Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. So I can't do anything without him, and I have to do everything to the best of my ability. Put those two together, and what you get is the balance. Uh, we must work with all of his might to be transformed. And when that transformation happens, your tongue proves your faith. See that? So stop biting and poisoning others. Do you know that God must change your words to prove that you're saved? Do you know that? Meaning if there's no evidence coming out of your mouth that Christ is alive in you, there's no evidence that you're saved. Your words have to prove your faith. And if your language has never been drastically altered by God Almighty, your heart hasn't either. I mean, has God ever convicted you of lying or shouting or gossip? Has he ever gone to work on your snobby tones? Has he ever challenged you on your arrogance as you look down on others? Has he ever confronted you about the faithless words you say about your God when you're doubting? You should have an encyclopedia of encounters with God's word as it pertains to your mouth. And you should, it should not take you long to come up with times when God challenged you and changed you in what you say or how you say it. Stop biting and poisoning others. If God changes your speech, it proves that Christ is alive in you. So first, this image is pour water on your fiery words. Second, stop biting and poisoning others. And then third, he, he gives us other illustrations. Jot this down. Turn on the fresh words, turn off the sewer talk. Uh, so reading on in verse 9, he says, With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people, who are made in the likeness of God. He's now exposing the inconsistency of a person who comes to church, sings the songs, says all the Christian talk, then throughout the week is mauling other people with their words. That's inconsistent. From the same mouth, verse 10, come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring, so now we're, we're kind of in the desert looking for water on a hot day, does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water. Obviously, one is you can drink it, it's nourishing, it brings life. The other, you can't drink it, it's polluted, it uh, brings death. Verse 12, can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. What he's saying here is the source produces the, 
what flows from it. So from the source of salt water or, or filthy water, bitter water, comes forth water that is undrinkable, that gives death. From the fresh pond comes fresh water. Then he uses, uh, uses uh, agriculture here. He says, you know, if you, if you go to the, to the olive tree, what, what do you get? You get olives. If you go to the fig, what do you get? You get figs. It comes from the source. So the source pours for, forth what comes out of it. We've got some pictures here uh, in the ancient world. So uh, you've got figs there. Here's the next picture. You know, and that comes from the same the same vine, the same tree consistently. The tree produces that fruit. And here's the next one. If you want grapes, you've got to go to the grapevine. There are zero figs on that, and there are zero grapes on the fig tree. And he's just showing that if a tree can figure out to consistently produce the same thing, how much more should we figure out that it's inconsistent to be producing the fruit of life and the fruit of death from the same mouth. It's unnatural what we're doing, and it's against God. It doesn't go along with the source. It says here, um, if you look at verse 9, with it we bless our Lord and Father. I love those descriptions of God. He's our Lord, the rightful ruler of my life. He's, he's Father a faithful provider of everything I enjoy. And I could say that to him, you are my Lord, ruler of the universe. And I could say, you are my Father, giver of everything good that I enjoy. And then it says, but we curse people. So I say these nice things to God, then I go to a person, it says, who is made in God's likeness. We learn about you and me here. We're made in God's image. That gives us our value. That gives us our dignity. We're worthy of respect because we're made in the image of the king. So if I say these things to God and then I say different things to someone who's made in his image, how does that not reach him? Because I'm insulting his creation. One author compares this to praising a king to his face and then on the way out of the palace smashing the face of his statue off. What have you just done? You have done something very inconsistent. You've said one thing to his face, then you have damaged something that, that contains his glory. We have to understand that the way that we talk to other people, our parents, the way that we talk to our spouses, the way that we talk to our small group, directly reflect what we think of God. You can't separate the two. And the problem here is, it's not like it's even possible for me to say some good things and then some bad things, and the bad pollutes the good. So it's not like as long as I say a greater number of nice things to my wife, then it's okay if I slam her with my words a few times. That's not the way words work. Any salt changes the whole pool. Uh, any sewage changes the whole tank. And words spring forth from the heart, and God wants us to have a pure and clean heart. In Matthew 12, 34, Jesus said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So the, li the lips simply produce what's been welling up in the heart for, for years. 
And God wants that to be a clean source of life-giving speech. Every single word matters to God. And he wants to change your heart and to change your lips. The mouth is like a faucet. And there's two handles. And the one is water and the other is sewage. And if you brought a pitcher to, to the faucet and you turn the water on, any sewage makes the pitcher undrinkable. So the goal that we're aspiring to is to go under the sink and to turn off the sewage so that it's just fresh water springing forth from our heart. That's the high holy standard of our God. We can't do that without him. It's going to be a fight every day. I'm tempted every day to say things that are sinful, things that fall far short from the exact speech that God is calling me to use. And I'm sure you feel that too. So we have to turn on the fresh words. We have to turn off the sewer talk. And these illustrations here are so helpful. This ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? No. Can a fig tree bear olives? No. A grapevine produce figs? No. Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. This is a call to cleanse out the heart. This is a call for us to cleanse out the heart. Now, God is not covering this in his word. James is not covering this in his word to give you a tremendous sense of condemnation. Um, if you are unsaved and you say you're a Christian, but your speech has never been changed, then yes, actually God wants you to feel a tremendous sense of condemnation because your words will actually be used to convict you on judgment day. And if God has never changed your lips, he's never changed your heart, you're not saved. But if you've been saved, then you're in the fight. Every day, you're learning more and more to reflect the glory of Christ with your words. He doesn't want you to feel this tremendous sense of condemnation. He's warning you, as a father would, uh, so that you don't burn your life to the ground. He's warning you, as a father would, so that you don't sink your teeth into the person you're having a hard time relating to. He's warning you so you don't turn the sewage on and, and poison the relationships or pollute the relationships around you. He's giving you such a strong warning. Why? Because he loves you and he wants your life to be filled with the good fruit of, of lips that please him. But if that's going to happen, you have to take drastic action to cleanse out your heart. I'm sure by now you've heard about what happened in Flint, Michigan. Uh, Time Magazine did a, a whole issue on it in February of, of this year. They called it the poisoning of an American city. And if you've read up on it, you've heard of how this tragedy took place. There are 100,000 people in Flint, Michigan, and the water that was coming from Detroit, from Lake Huron, was switched to the Flint River to save money, and that water was, was poisoned. It was not cleansed properly um, so it says here, the first thing many residents noticed after water from the Flint River began flowing through their taps was the color. Blue one day, tinted green the next, sometimes shades of beige, brown, yellow. Then there was the smell. It was ripe and pungent. Some likened it to gasoline, others to the inside of a fish market. The auto industry had polluted this river for decades. In April of 2014, Flint began drawing 
its water from this local river instead of buying it from Detroit in order to save money. Residents of this ailing industrial city began complaining of burning skin, hand tremors, hair loss, even seizures. Parents were finding red splotches on their hands and faces of their children who were bathing in this water. Yet for almost 19 months, as Flint River water corroded the city's decades-old pipes um, and leaked lead into the sinks and showers of a city of 100,000 people, officials repeatedly told residents the water was fine. Flint's mayor appeared in front of a TV camera, gulping it down. Why did they do it? Because the city was facing a $15 million debt crisis. The switch to Flint River was going to be the way to save money. When they switched on April 25, 2014, it was celebrated by many local leaders. City and state officials toasted with glasses of Flint River water as they hit a button to officially shut off the Detroit water. But by October of 2014, the water was so corrosive that GM announced it would no longer use municipal water at a local plant because it, because it was damaging engine parts. Why did this happen? How did the water get so bad? Shockingly, after they made the switch, the local officials made the decision, even though they were trying to save so much money already, to further cut costs uh, by not adding the corrosion control needed to purify the water. It would cost $80 to $100 a day, roughly $30,000 a year, to purify this water, and they decided it wasn't worth the cost. $30,000 a year. They waited too long to add the corrosion control, and so January 16th of this year, President Obama declared a federal emergency and now it's going to cost $5 million in aid to start cleaning up the mess. What a portrait of individuals who won't fix a problem, and because of it, they end up poisoning 100,000 people, and they do irreversible damage, not only to the pipes, but to the people, all in an effort to save money. I think this is a great illustration, as I close here, of the power of your words to harm others. If you don't add corrosion control to your words, over the years, they will harm everyone in your life. And there will be irreversible damage done if you don't let God change your speech. But I want you to know that there is hope. There's hope. Maybe you feel like you look behind you, and boy, your words have caused forest fires, and there are people who are burned by what you've said. You know what? God can heal those relationships. But he wants you to see that your words caused the problem. Maybe, maybe presently, right now, man, you have your fangs sunk into the neck of someone in your life, and the words you're saying about them are shockingly bitter, and God wants you to release now. Maybe in your future, you haven't quite purified the heart yet, so, so it's just going to keep flowing if you don't turn it off and purify the words. God's heart for you is one of redemption. There are three verses I want us to meditate on as we close in prayer. The first one is Proverbs 18, 21. It says this, Death and life 
are in the power of the tongue. Don't underestimate what your words are doing. Psalm 141.3 says this, Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Amen. Keep watch over the door of my lips. And Proverbs 10.11 gives us hope. It says this, The mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life. That's what we're aspiring to. Let's close in prayer and use these verses to speak to our Father about this challenge. Let's pray.